Okay, today's daf is Gitin Nunhei, 55, and we pick up at the Mishnah, and we're still in the middle of discussions around things that are done for Tikkun Olam or similar types of Takanot. Hey, Reb Yochanan ben Gudguda, we pick up with the Mishnah. Reb Yochanan ben Gudguda testified. This is a Mishnah that's also in Edios. Edios is a Masechet, which is a collection of testimonies different people had of halachic traditions. And Reb Yochanan ben Gudguda testified to the following tradition. If you have a girl who was a deaf, deaf and not able to speak intelligibly, normally we say Chereshet is deaf mute, but it doesn't mean literally can't speak. It just means that because uh, they're born deaf, never able to learn how to speak in a way that uh, hearing people, like in a way that was intelligible. So that person halachically is considered to be an enobarda, somebody who does not have sufficient intellect to be obligated in mitzvot and to be um, mean that their legal transactions would be vi- binding and so on. This had to do with the fact that until a few hundred years ago, when they uh, figured out how to educate the deaf and they developed schools for the deaf, uh, the, you know, the general belief was, was that deaf people did not have the same intellect, proof being that they could not understand what we were saying and they were not as educated and cannot communicate well and therefore they would act in strange ways. Obviously all of that had to do with the fact that uh, we, you know, that uh, uh, society did not yet figure out how to be able to educate them and develop sign language and so on. So Halacha assumes that and, um, and that assumption got sort of reassessed very seriously over the last few hundred years um, but obviously that's the assumption that this mission is working with. So here's a girl and she is a chireshet, so two reasons why she's not yet, doesn't have yet her own ability to transact. But as an underage girl, her father is able to marry her off. So her father marries her off. And the purpose of saying that that was the case, even though the rabbis allowed a cheresh and a cheresh, they created a rabbinic type of a marriage for somebody who was either the man or the woman or both were, were uh, deaf and unable to speak intelligibly. Um, but this is a doraita marriage because the father is able to marry off his daughter when she is a minor. Um, and therefore, um, it is, it is doraita binding. And nevertheless, even though it's still right to binding, she yotes his beget. Now the husband wants to divorce her, gives her a get. So, um, and um, to give her this get, you might think, well, she does not have, uh, we, we, we assume she doesn't have das, and therefore she's not aware about what the giving of the get means, and therefore the giving of the get should not work. And he is testifying that no, the giving of the get does work. Why? Because since a woman can be divorced against her will, um, she can also be divorced even if she is not fully cognizant of what is happening. Um, and that's quite surprising. Though you, can, you know, one does not necessarily mean the other. Um, but that is the uh, position that Halacha adopted and that allowed her to be divorced. Um, so that's teaching number one, very relevant to Gitin. But we'll see all of these Testimonies of Rabbi Yochanan and Gudgadar really said because of the ends, which are certain types of takanot. Now, if you have a, um, a minor girl who is married to a Kohen and not married by her father, so this is only a Durabanan marriage because there was a need for to protect the interests of, um, of women um, and of daughters uh, in a society in which you know, they could not, uh, would not earn, generally earn for themselves and be able to protect themselves, even when the father was not around, the rabbi saw the need to establish um, a, a, mar- a way in which she could be married through her, by her uh, contracted through her mothers and brothers. But that Kedushetana, that is a Durabanan, that's not Duraita. So here she was, and she was um, married to a Kohen. So this is not binding from the Torah. And a Kohen, his wife and his children can eat truma, which is normally forbidden to non-Kohanim. His children, of course, are Kohanim, but his wife is not. And nevertheless, since she's married to a Kohen, um, she is able to eat truma. So here, even though the marriage is only Durabanan, 
Rabbanan, nevertheless, she'ocheles petruma, they allowed her to eat truma, and we'll see why that is in the Gemara. Obviously, that gives more weight to the idea that this is a real marriage, and it might have been very hard to manage without that. There he is eating truma at the whole table, and she has to avoid it, and so on. But how they're able to do that, given it's not a do right to marriage, we'll see in the Gemara. If she dies, her husband inherits her. Um, that's another halacha, not limited to a Kohen, that even though Kiddush Ketan is only rabbinic, uh, it would follow the same Torah law, that the same law as if it was a Torah marriage where uh, the husband inherits the wife on her death. Um, okay. And on the a, a beam that was stolen, that was built into a castle, somebody stole, you know, imagine a, I don't know, a concrete, uh, a, um, you know, a, a brick, a cornerstone, and laid it at the foundation of a building and then built the entire building. And you can still see it. Look, it's the brick. is right there. The cornerstone is right there. It's still mine. You have to give it back to me. So halachically, if it's still the owner's and it can still be identified, um, then it has, the owner has a right to return it. You know, there's questions about a shinoi, about how much of a change transforms it and it, no longer the owner can claim it. Um, but um, in some circumstances, you know, it might be really, you know, like, like, like deep in the building, but technically it hasn't really changed. It's still the same beam or the brick that it used to be. And now the question is, is that can the owner demand it back? So the halacha was, no, that we said that the owner just, you just pay the owner the money you don't actually have to go ahead and return the beam itself. Um, and here we get the Takana language because of the Takana of we want to help people do tshuva and we want people to own up to their, you know, to their thefts and so on. And therefore, we do not want this to be an obstacle. And a, a stolen um, sin offering that was not known to the, um, to the masses, meaning it was not public knowledge that this sin offering was stolen. So Reuven stole Shimon and then wanted to bring it to offer it up for his own uh, sacrifice. Um, or another possibility, we'll see which of these is true in the Gemara. Um, the uh, other way is he just stole Shimon's cow and he sac- sanctified it. So here you have, that's really the case in the Gemara, as we'll see. Okay, so you have a you have this animal that was stolen and is now being used um, and has been sanctified by Shimon. It, 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 I forget who's who. Anyway, Ruvain stole Shimon's non-sanctified animal, um, Ruvain sanctified it. He wants to bring it as a korban. If it's if it's not known that it's stolen, then shehim echaperet. Nevertheless, we will allow it to atone bipnei tikunam for the sake of a takana, for the sake of the mizbeach, okay, of the altar. Now, what exactly tikun mizbeach there is here, and whether the real halacha should be it should always work, it should always not work. What exactly is the st- distinction between well known or not well known? We will see this in the Gemara. Um, I should mention that these four things, you know, they seem a little bit random. They might just be the four things that he had to testify. But there's also, if you think about the oral tradition and the way to remember, there's a way in which these four things, one leads into the next. Um, the first case is Hisia Aviha, her father married her off, this Chereshet, this woman, this child who is deaf. Um, and then the next case was and then you have Baila Yorsha inherits her and Hamerish Hagazul, right? The Merish which is stolen. And then you have Khatat Hagzula, Shilono Dal Rabim. So there's a way in which, you know, you, one of these sort of links into the next and you can remember all of them. Okay, let's take a look at the Gemara. 
Amarafa says Rafa, may do such Reb Yochanan and Gudgada from the testimony of Reb Yochanan and Gudgada, we can infer the following halacha. Um, a man said to witnesses, see this get here, take a look, read it, you see it's a get, and so on, fine, I'm folding it up, I'm going to give my wife this get, you'll be witnesses that I've delivered this get to my wife. And he said to her, oh, here, take this, uh, you know, could you go ahead and please take my, um, uh, you know, this uh, document of mine, this file folder, or, you know, this starchov, this, this promise, this, this note, that's this uh, debtor's note that I have against somebody. Would you go ahead and take this? And he handed it to her. Um, and he didn't tell her that it was a get. And then she opened it up and she saw it was a get. And he said, ha ha, surprise, you're divorced. So the halacha is, that actually works. Even though he, she was not aware of what she was taking, the fact that he gave it to her and she took possession of it, and we'll have to see later in the Masechet how do you take possession and so on, that is enough. Um, how do you learn this from Rabbi Yochanan Gudgada? Gudgada Da'ata. The same way Rabbi Yochanan Gudgada says that if this person is a chireshet, is a, a deaf, and uh, therefore we're assumed she doesn't have full awareness of what's happening, and nevertheless it works, and that halacha is learned out from the fact that it could be against her will. Again, against her will does not necessarily mean against her cognizance or full awareness, but that nevertheless is the tradition. That's the halacha. So once we've established that not only do you not need her will, but you don't even need her real full cognizance, hachanami lo binandata, here too, you don't need her full cognizance, and as long as, you know, she's aware that she's getting some piece of paper um, and she's taking possession of it, that's enough. So, um, so now the question says, Pita, well, that's obvious, meaning, okay, maybe Rabbi Yochanan Gudgudah's halacha isn't obvious, but once you teach that, shouldn't this be obvious as well? No. No, I might think it's one thing to say what you're doing and she didn't fully understand. You know, then we could say you don't need her full understanding. But when he says, take this starchov, he was calling it a promissory note, he was implicitly nullifying its status as a get. Right, and we had the whole idea of bittel hagep before, right? Or you could say he was he was he was he was uh, reframing the meaning of the giving. So maybe she doesn't need her awareness, but he's reframed it, or he's been mevatalit. So Kamash Malon, Misa Armalahu. No, we say if he wanted to be Mavatalit, he would have told it to the witnesses. He told the witnesses, I'm about to divorce my wife. So therefore, given that, you know, he would not have done this after having told the witnesses without updating the witnesses. So we're going to say that him saying this is not a reframing, it is not meant to be a bittu. Um, so then why did he say it's a starchov? He was embarrassed to say he's divorcing her, or maybe he just wanted to be particularly mean. Okay, but whatever the reason is we use the fact that he didn't tell the Adim to show that this statement is not meant to reframe or is not meant to be mevat the get. Okay, so that's fine, and that's definitely is def a chiddish. You know, I would say the other chiddish, of course, is that even though a chereshet is not a bardat, um, the Gemara understood that, a, that they had, that, 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 that people, even when assumed they didn't have full intellect, assumed that they had um, a degree of intellect. It says, daita klishta in one Gemara, like a weakened intellect. And having a weakened intellect and not being able to fully appreciate is still different than t- completely being misrepresented and not being aware of what's going on at all. Um, so anyway, it is a interesting Gemara, right? And, you know, raises the question, could you give it to your wife when she's uh, asleep? You know, how far do you take this? We'll see about that as the Masechet continues. That's the first case. The Akhtana Bas Yisrael, second case. Mer- uh, a a, a, a Ketana who is married by her brother and mother. It's not a Doraita marriage. She's married to a Kohen, and nevertheless, she can eat Truma. So what is this about? 
So the Gemara first says, in the process of figuring out what it's about, it wants to point out, why did, if we were trying to look at the Rabbanon marriages, why did we jump to a case of Akhtana? We were just talking about a Chereshet, okay? So why didn't we give that example? An adult Chereshet also cannot do right to be married, or Cheresh either, it's not, they can't do a binding transaction, but it does work, as I mentioned before, the Rabbanon. So as long as we were talking about a Chereshet, why did you switch to a Ketana? Now, of course, the case started with a Ketana who was a Chereshet, whose father married her, so Ketana is one piece of that. But nevertheless, the Gemara thinks Chereshet is the part, that, the salient thing that sticks out, and it's significant that we, if we wanted to give an idea of a Darabanan marriage that can still eat co- truma, why did it go to Ketana and not stick with Chereshet? Okay, V'ilu Chereshet lo achla. It's implicit in the Mishnah, since it left the Chereshet case, that a Chereshet could not eat. My time, but why not? So we're afraid of a case of a Kohen who's a Cheresh married to a, a woman who's a Cheresheth, and then in that case, they'll eat Truma. Now, now, what's the problem with that? I mean, that, you know, it's also a Jorabanan marriage. He's a Kohen, you know, he's married to her. Who, who cares if one of them is a Cheresh or they're both Cherashim? Why should that matter? And how is it different than a Katana? So the Gemara says, Velecho, why not eat it? The Gemara says, uh, Worst case, it's a minor, meaning somebody who is not obligated, who is eating something trace. Truma is not, uh, is not able to be eaten by a non-Kohen or somebody who's not the right to marry to a Kohen. So that may be something that we can tolerate. Now, this is, of course, a little funny because there's a whole debate about whether katan ochel nevelos, whether if a minor is eating tray food, whether Basin Mitsuvin Lahafrisha or not, does Basin have an obligation to intervene and to stop this from happening? Even according to the opinion that Basin does not have an obligation, it would be a little funny that the rabbis would allow lechatchila it to happen and say you can feed your wife this type of truma. So the fact that the Gemara is thinking, oh, this should all be fine, is a little funny. Also, you're not allowed to be machil piyadayim, feed with your very own hands and you know, maybe this would be somewhat analogous to that. Um, but presumably what the Gemara means is, is that since clearly there's an overriding desire here to make this work because she's married to a Kohen, and there are practical reasons why we want to, even though it's only a Durabada marriage, allow her to eat truma. So since this person, either the minor of the mission, we have to get back and see why Cheresh is different than the minor, but since the person, whether it's a minor or whether it's a Cheresheth, is not obligated in mitzvot, so that should, even though there's a problem of that should give us enough latitude to say that we are going to treat this Durabanan as a marriage and let her eat. Okay, so basically, what's the problem? Let her eat. And the implicit point is, and if you don't like it, then why is Ketana any better? So let's take a look at what the Gemara says. So, Ah, so now we're getting to it. It says, here's the difference, and here's why it's different than a katana. Than a katana, than a katana. Because in the case of a Kohen who is, you know, uh, um, is, it, is not a cheresh, that's pikeach, like has all of his senses, is not a cheresh, right? Um, married to a cheresheth, that's a Jorabanan marriage, and the person eating, the woman, is halachically is not uh, obligated because of her status as a chereshet, so we can tolerate that and uh, and therefore create allow the durabanan marriage to work and allow her to eat because it's not she's not violating because as a chereshet she's not obligated. However, says the Gemara, that case will easily lead to the mirror image of that. What's the mirror image of that? A, co- a Kohen who's a Cheresh married to a woman who is, a, who is not a Cheresh. Um, and in that case, in that, the person eating the woman 
is obligated in mitzvot. She's not a chireshet. She's an adult. So therefore, we cannot allow a marriage of a kohen and a non-kohen, you know, a kohen and a woman, one of them being a chiresh, a chiresh or chireshet, we can't allow them that to drabanan eat truma, even though there's a desire to create that, to allow that drabanan marriage to let them eat truma for practical reasons, like the katana case. We can't allow that case because the chireshet case will work, but the mirror image won't, and that will be a real violation. So we have to not allow the chireshet case at all. So how about the katana case? Okay, so by the katana, the same thing. The katana eating it, that's okay. She's not obligated, and therefore, Durabana, we're going to make life easy, and we're going to allow it to work. And um, once it, she becomes a gadola, halachically, she'll be married. Why aren't we afraid it's going to lead to the reverse case of a katan married to a gadola? Because that type of a marriage doesn't exist. Halacha recognizes the marriage of an, of an adult male to an underage female. To write if it's through the father, to write if it's through the brothers. And there was, as I said, societal needs for that. But it does not recognize at a to right level or to rabbanon level, the marriage of a um, minor male to an adult female. So then therefore, since the, the mirror image doesn't exist, we can allow the adult male married to the minor female, the Kohen, we can allow her to eat the truma, even though um, he really halachically is not allowed. Okay? So the Gemara says, um, So, okay. But why not, back to the Chereshet case, I understand that if it became the flip of the, uh, of the man being the Chereshet and the woman not, that would be a real violation. But, and therefore we have to say the whole thing is off limits. But why not let the Chereshet eat truma durabanan? Something that's only rabbinically truma. Either because of whether truma applies nowadays or does it apply you know, to fruit or just to grain and so on. Let it apply for truma durabanan. And therefore... You know, worst case, worst case scenario, if it leads to the flip case and it leads to a cherish married to an adult woman and she eats the truma and it'll only be a rabbinic issue. So let's allow the chereshet case to work and maybe we don't have to safeguard the flip if we're only dealing with a drabanan issue. So the Gemara says, no. You know, we're afraid, you know, one th- will lead to the other. And this might sound like two safeguards, but the reality is sometimes we do make two safeguards. So we don't let the Chereshet eat even Truma Durabanan because even with this Durabanan marriage, which would be nice, Truma Durabanan, Durabanan marriage, and so on, so you know they can make all the rules because the whole thing is only Truma Durabanan, but still, even though that would be great, we don't allow it because it could lead to her being, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a non-cheresh, him not to have him being a cheresh, and lead to a doraita. So two things would have to change, and that would be a real violation, and therefore we have to not allow it. But by the katana case, we can because there doesn't exist the mirror image. Rashi does say to make the katana case more palpable that we're talking about truma durabanan even in the case of the katana, but you don't necessarily get that sense in the gemara. In the gemara, you get the sense even truma doraita, since um, she's only a minor, we might want to allow the durabanan marriage here. To, to define and to allow her to eat this truma. Okay, so that's the second case of a Durabanan marriage and the woman eating in the truma. Um, okay, now um, it does not deal with the Yerusha case at all and goes on to the beam that was stolen that was built into the, uh, to the building. Tana Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught, Gazo meyush ibn obibira, somebody stole a beam and built it into a building. Beit Shammai omi mekakea kol abira kulo machzir meyush lebala. You know, Beit Shammai being like the one you got to keep to the letter of the law, not responsive to, uh, you know, to some of these human realities, interesting given the whole nice response of Beit Shammai we had a while ago about the evit that was half free and half slave.
slave. Anyway, he says, I don't care. You're a goddess. We should not go easy on you. You got to tear down your whole building and return it to the owners. No, the, the owner only can demand the, the cost of the beam. In order to make it more possible for people to do kuva, not to create obstacles for people to own up to their crimes. Okay. And now the stolen chatas. As again, I said the language in the mission was a little vague. Did you steal the actual animal that that you know when when Ruvain stole Shimon Sacrum's Shimon? Did he steal something Shimon had sanctified, or did he steal something uh, just an animal of Shimon's and he sanctified it? Now Shimon had already sanctified it. There's no question. Nothing could even begin to be a beginning conversation. It's Shimon's chatas. The kedusha it has is connected to Shimon, and therefore there would be no question it would work. The question, and what we're going to deal with is, he stole Shimon's animal, Reuven did, and then Reuven sanctified it. So, did, did he get enough ownership over that animal by stealing it, and then by sanctifying it, that that actually makes it his, and that for it actually does work as Reuven's chatas? That's the question, okay? The Mishnah says it, does, it works if it is not well, not, you know, uh, com- public knowledge, but let's figure out what the real halacha should be before we get into any takana. Amar um, Ula, says Ula, Dvar Torah, beinodo, beinlonoda, enamachaperes. The real halacha before you get to any takana is whether this was um, known, uh, publicly known that this was stolen or not. If Ruvain steals Shimon's animal and sanctifies it, it's not going to work for Shimon, for Ruvain. Why not? My time, yeish kedi lokani. Let's assume that as soon as it's stolen, and gazela, by the way, is public, is like is a robbery, not burglary. It's publicly known, like it's known that it was stolen. The owner finds out it was maybe stolen directly from him, and therefore there's a whole debate in the Gemara Baba Kama. But we're saying let's assume we can automatically assume the owner knows about it, and the owner is miyaish, gives up hope of ever getting it back. That's Yeyush. So there's a debate in the Gemara and Babakama whether Yeyush is Kona. After the owner has given up hope getting it back, does that mean that the Goslin owns it? Now, um, cl- there are cases where we know Yeyush works. A classic example of Yeyush is not by Gzela, but it starts with a lost object. I lost my wallet in Grand Central Station. I said, oh my God, I'm never going to get it back. Forget about it. I've given up hope. And then somebody finds it. If they can assume that I knew about it and therefore that there was Yeyush, um, then they can keep it. Why? Because once I gave up hope, then that makes it free, like I no longer have my connection to it. It's no longer sort of under my control, even psychologically, and therefore it's free for them to take and take it into their control. That's called yeish and shinoi rishos. What happens by the goslin is different, though. By the goslin, first Ruvain has it, he's in his possession, and then I have given up hope. Ruvain doesn't take it from being out in the middle of Grand Central Station. He was holding on to it while I gave up hope. He might not be entitled now to say, oh, so Dove isn't all concept, you know, psychologically holding on to it. Now it's free for me to take. No, he took it when it was totally under my control. He has an obligation to return it to me. My Yehush doesn't work for him. Maybe if he sold it to somebody, it would work for the next guy, but my Yehush doesn't work for him. He took it from me, he's got to return it to me. So that's the question whether Yehush Kedi by itself, without Shini Rishus, in the hands of the Goslin, does Yehush work? So Ula says, look, Yehush by itself does not work. And therefore, Ruvain stole Shimon's cow. This cow does not belong to Ruvain. He is not the owner of it, even with Yehush. And therefore, therefore, when he sanctifies it, it doesn't really become his korban. 
Now, got to pause for a moment because it'll be interesting when we flip the, the Gemara. Well, the simplest way to say it is flip the page. When he sanctifies it, it's not his, so you can't sanctify something that's not yours. So he's calling it a chatas, but it's really not a chatas at all. It's just a cow. Um, however, it, it, there is another possibility, and um, this emerges from comparing this Gemara to other Gemaras, and um, it, which is that when he sanctifies it, that becomes the Shinei Rishus. Now it's like Hektesh takes possession of it, or it becomes a Shinei Hashem. Now its identity changes, and it's called a Korban. And his, the Yehush and his physical possession of it might give him enough traction, enough ownership, even though he doesn't fully own it, in order to hand it over to Hektesh, by his Hektesh, in order to change its status. So it could be <coughs> that it actually is a Chathas, it is sanctified. But since it came through Seft, he, when it get, went into Hectish, it was still stolen. He didn't own it yet. So since he didn't own it yet at the moment he sanctified it, it does not work for him. It, basically, based on the principle of mitzvah ba'avera, since it came through the sin and it was not his when he sanctified it, even if it right now is kadosh, it still would not work. So one way or another, since he did not own it, it's either not even a korban or certainly not a korban that works for him. So the basic halacha says ula is, this korban does not work. Okay, um, so, umatam amru lo noda mechaperes. So why did they say that if it's not public knowledge, it will work, it will atone for Reuven, and Reuven now does not have to bring another korban. So, shelo yu kohanim him. So the kohanim should not be anguished. The kohanim should not feel like, oh my God, you know, we found out afterwards that this, the guy had stolen this korban, and now, you know, we're, look, we're, we're, every day we're taking korbanos from sinners. So, you know, okay, I'm shogeg, whatever. But who knows, you know, maybe we're going to eat some stuff that might be stolen, and then we will, if, since it wasn't really sanctified, forget just that it didn't work for him, and whether he's obligated to the korban, we ate stuff that, you know, that like, that, that, that wasn't kosher, essentially. Okay, we ate, a, you know, so, um, so, you know, chulin that was shechted in the Beis HaMikdash or a korban that was shechted that didn't work. You're not allowed to eat that stuff if it's not mechaper. So in order that the Kohanim should not worry about this beforehand or afterwards, if it got found out, we're saying, you know, it doesn't matter. We're going to say that it works, okay? And, um, and you don't have to bring another one um, now. And, um, but of course, if it's known, if it was public knowledge, we don't want you to be a party to that and we don't want to come and help you in that case. If it's public knowledge, you have to not accept it. Okay, so that nimsam is beach bottle. So if the Kohanim were afraid about accepting korbanos from people, they would not bring, you know, the korbanos would not be brought. So therefore, that was the, um, uh, uh, okay, I'm sorry, excuse me, I skipped the line. I'm really a rabbin, the rabbi said, no, shalom you are kind of I'm really a rabbin, so the rabbi said to him, le'ula, v'anam ikneitikon mizbeach tanan, but it says because of the sake of the mizbeach, you're saying it's for the sake of the Kohanim. So the answer is, amalehem, kimen the Kohanim atzevim, nimsam mizbeach patel. If the Kohanim are angry, and sad, then that's going to impact them, their eagerness to do their work, and they'll maybe have to triple check everything before they accept it and so on, and it's going to have impact on the Mizbeach. We want things to go smoothly. If it's known, you shouldn't accept it, but otherwise it's okay. Now, of course, you know, Tosis discusses the whole question about how can the Chachamim, or Rashi also, whatever, how can the Chachamim tell you you don't have to bring a Korban if you're still obligated in a Korban if it really didn't work? You know, and that's about the ability of Chachamim to say, to, you know, to be override Torah when it comes to like Shev al to like passively um, not do something. You know, also an interesting question, again, what exactly is the status of the korban? Is it chulin shedish chutu You know, is that a do right or not? What exactly are the halakha? 
was there, where maybe it wasn't chulin, maybe it really was a korban, just a korban that didn't work. But anyway, Jarabanan, we're going to say that it worked. The right that none of this should work. Um, okay, that's Ula. Um, Rev Yehuda, now Rev Yehuda said, No, 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 no. Iker Hadin works either way, okay? Even if it was well known. My time Yehush could Kadikanan, because Yehush does work. So as soon as he stole Shimon's cow, it's his cow, and Shimon gave up hope. Now he sanctified it. It was already his when he sanctified it, so it's totally Ruvain's Chatas, totally should work. Okay, umatam amru. So then, why did they say no That if it's a public knowledge, it doesn't work. Because you don't want to say, look, you know, things that are publicly stolen being offered up on the mizbech. Look at this mizbech. It's all, it's eating. It's consuming stolen, you know, stolen goods. Right? It makes the it makes the kohanim and the mizbech and everybody complicit in the theft here. You know, go ahead and steal. We don't care. Just bring us a korban. It's horrific in terms of what it's modeling. The whole gemara about Mitzvah Babi Avera, you know, starts with the Pasuk of Sone Geza Baola. I got hate something stolen in a burnt offering, right? You know, that's where you have to start by modeling. You don't think that you get to make up for it for stealing by putting it on the Mizbeach, okay? So we really have to make sure that if it's known that it's stolen, we are not going to accept it, all right? Um, so that's the halacha. Um, so now the Gemara says like this. So according to Ula, I understand, so for Ula, remember, the Chiddush is that we are going to say it shouldn't work, but the Chiddush is we're going to let it work. So that's why we said a chatos. Okay, why? Why does that make sense? Because the concern is that the Kohanim didn't want to feel that they were eating something that wasn't really a korban. Okay, so therefore, you have to give the only thing that the Kohanim really eat, the shlamim, the owners eat, the ola goes all on the mizbeach. So the concern is the chatas. Okay, chatas and anashim. But whatever, we understand why it's chatas. It's about the Kohanim. Ela Rav Yehuda, might your yachatas, But according to Rav Yehuda, why mention a chatas? Even an ola. You know, an ola, even all the more so should be a problem. The whole thing is being consumed. As I said, the Pasuk says, Ani Hashem Sone Gezo Ba'ola. So, no. My, Afilo Ola Nami, So, Afilo Ola Nami, excuse me. So, the Lord says, Lomi Baya Kamar. Yeah, yes, of course. It goes without saying. Lomi Baya Ola de Kolilhi. It goes without saying that we're not going to let an Ola work, because that's really like the whole thing going up to God, and that's something that's going to be stolen. I mean, that really is, you know, it's horrific, um, you know, uh, what that is modeling. Um, that God is taking this uh, stolen sacrifice and it's being offered up to God. Um, uh, but a chatas, where the Kohanim eat the meat, and the only thing you really put on the altar is blood and the fats. That type of a thing, eh, won't so much look that we're able to put our stolen stuff on the altar. Didn't really go on the altar. It's only the Kohanim who ate it. Maybe it won't look so bad. Okay, so so uh, even so, they said no. It still looks like the mizbeach is eating stolen things. It still makes it horrific that people think they can steal and then bring it as a korban. And then, of course, the irony is bring it as a korban as a chatas that then they think will atone for them. So we have to make a policy that we are not going to accept it. Okay, fine. So now we have two ways of understanding. One is it shouldn't work, but we're going to let it work. And the other is it do- it, it, um, it does work but we're going to 
not let it work. Now, there's a question in that approach that we're going to not let it work, which is how far does that go? Does that mean we refuse to accept it? Yes, obviously. What if we accepted it, this well-known, this publicly known gazela, we accepted it and put it on the Mizbech and sprinkled the blood. Are we going to tell the owner that he now has to bring, oh, you know what? It didn't work. You have to go ahead and bring another korban, right? Or maybe that far we won't go because that will really be like a chulin, you know, bringing chulin on, on the Mizbech. So there definitely, you know, there's definitely those that say that that far we would not go if it was already brought, you know, that we that would be okay. Although again, the language of the Mishnah of Eina Mechaperes does not exactly sound that way. The language of the Mishnah says, like, oh, excuse me, the Mishnah is talking about the low note that says Mechaperes. So okay, it could still work. All right, so that's the question about when it is known, how far are we going to go, even B'diavet that was offered, or only to refuse to accept it to begin with. Let's take a look now as the Gemara continues. Um, okay. Um, so the word says like this. Um, so the Mishnah says, the Takana was, if it is stolen and it is not well known, that it atones. So who does that sound like? So that's pretty much, that's that's that works perfectly for Ula. The tik takana is that we will let it atone. And if it's not known, that we will let it atone. But Yehuda, the, it should have said the opposite. The takana was, was that when it was known that to be stolen, it won't work. So the Mishnah says, you're right, that is really implicitly what it's saying. No damechaperes, no damechaperes, no um, excuse me, that what they said was, if it's not well known, meaning only if it's not well known will it work, implicitly, when it is a publicly known, then it won't work because of Tikkun Mizbeach. All right, so it's a little funny why it would sort of bury the lead, but anyway, that's how he's reading it. Clearly, the simple read of the Mishnah is like Ula, that the Takana is that it, um, that it does work even though it shouldn't. Okay, Masiv Rav, now Rav a challenge. Here we have a Mishnah. Exactly our case. Ruvain stole this animal from Shimon, a cow, and then he uh, slaughtered it or sold it. And the normal halacha is that if you, st- st- you steal a cow or sheep and you slaughter it or you sell it, that you have to pay four or five, depending on cow or sheep. So that's what he did. He slaughtered and sold it. He pays double for being a Ghana, for having stolen it, but he does not pay four and five. Why does he not pay four and five? Because after he sanctified it, it was no longer his. And therefore, he was saying, you know, it belonged to Hektish. It didn't, no, no longer belonged to Shimon. It became sanctified and went out totally out of Shimon's control. And therefore, you're not chayiv if you slaughter it or sell it after the original owner no longer owns it. Okay, so Mishalim Teshulim came from the Mishalim Teshulim Ever Chamisha. But we taught, if he were now, after he sanctified this, to bring it as a korban outside of the base of Mikdash, then he would be chayiv kares. That's shchutechut, bringing something sanctified as a korban outside the base of Mikdash. Now we've got a problem. What's our problem? The only thing that your chayiv carries for when you bring as a korban outside the base of Mikdash is something that could be brought as an acceptable korban in the base of Mikdash. So this sounds like stealing it and sanctifying it. If you're now chayiv, if you bring it as a korban out of the base of Mikdash, sounds like mi'ikar hadin, it would work as a korban in the base of Mikdash. Otherwise, you would not be chayiv outside. That proves like Rev Yehuda and against Ula. Um, so, and if you say like Ula that Yehosh alone did not work, so So, how does this guy get Kares by shechting it outside of the base of Mikdash? That doesn't make any sense. It's something that halachically doesn't work in the base of Mikdash. 
And even if, for example, we'll say that it wasn't well known, but it doesn't work according midoraita. So since it doesn't work midoraita, only rabbinically we're pretending as if it works according to Ula, then how can you explain why it works outside, uh, why your chayv kari is outside of the base hamikdash? So, um, so amar avshizvi karis midivrayan. No, durabanan you have kares. When we said kares, we didn't really mean kares. We really meant we'll pretend rabbinically like you have kares. Okay, so the Gemara says, people laughed on them in response. We never speak about rabbinic kares. We can speak about rabbinic lashes because we actually give you lashes. We could think about something being rabbinically forbidden because actually we are saying it's forbidden. And if you listen to the rabbis, you follow our rules. But how do you speak about rabbinic kares? That's a metaphysical reality. We don't create rabbinic kares. So that can't be the answer. When we say kares, we have to really mean kares. So the Gemara says, Amalu Rava, so Rava responded back to the rabbis that laughed. A great person said something, even if it sounds silly to you, don't laugh. Presumably there's something behind it. What he meant to say was, whether he really meant to or not is not the point, that he means that through a rabbinic edict, you wind up getting do raisa kares. It's not a rabbinic kares. It's a kares that came because of what the rabbis did. Now, how did kares come because of what the rabbis did? He's going to tell you. The rabbis made you own it in order that you should be chayv if you were to shecht it out of the base of mikdash. Now, that sounds a little bit like you went ahead, you sanctified this, you shechted it outside of the base of mikdash. Retroactively, we're going to say you owned it when you sanctified it in order, because now we want to get you kares. That, that seems a little convoluted. So Tosa says much simpler than that. What, the, what he really means is the following. At the moment you sanctified it, this, if we're dealing with a korban that was not publicly known that this was stolen, so remember, what will be the halacha if you bring it to the base of mikdash? According to Ula, the halacha is, we're going to want this to work if it's not publicly known. It really shouldn't work, but we're going to want it to work. So how did we make that happen, according to Ula, that this thing, this stolen animal works even though it shouldn't? So you could just say, we just said it worked and don't bother bringing another one. But there's a better way. We could actually make it work. We could say that moment that you're sanctifying it, Durabana now we are making you own it. The rabbis have the right to assign ownership. So what, we're, what this is saying is when Ula said that Takana was that it's going to work if it's not publicly known, what that Takana actually did was it meant if you sanctify this animal you stole and you sanctify it as a korban, as a chatas, we're going to make it yours a second before you sanctified it. Now when it's sanctified, it's 100% a kosher korban. And now when you bring it, it'll work. If you bring it in the base of Mikdash, and if you bring it out of the base of Mikdash, you'll be chay of kares. Okay, so that explains how this whole thing works according to Ula. And by the way, we should say that it's important to note, going back to this issue about does it be really become sanctified or not, you know, in this Yehush and Shinu Rishos, that the Gemara was not bothered by the idea of four and five. It was only bothered about the question of whether it, um, whether it works for him as a, as a korban out of the base of Mikdash or in the base of Mikdash. The fact that you're exempt from four or five, the Gemara was okay with Ula. Even though Yehush didn't work, when you sanctified it, that sanctity actually did work, and you're not chayev now if you sell it or slaughter it four and five, it really isn't yours anymore. But because it wasn't yours when you sanctified it, it won't work as a korban. And the question was, and therefore, how is the takana gonna mean that you're gonna be chayev kares out of the base of mikdash? And the answer is yes, the takana will mean that because the takana made you own it before you sanctified it. And that's why it's gonna work as a korban, and that's why it's gonna work for kares out of the base of mikdash. So the Gemara says like this, 
Um, this is the question that I have. I've already been giving you the answer. But when the rabbi said you owned it, did they say you owned it from the moment you stole it or from the moment you sanctified it or a second before you sanctified it? So the Gemara says, you know, what would be the difference? Let's say it improved in value from the moment you stole it. You held on to it for a year before you sanctified it. And you sheared it, and it gave birth to some babies. So if you owned it from the moment you stole it, all of that is yours. If you only owned it the, mo- the second before you sanctified it, all of that, if, if and when, God willing, you do tshuva, all of that goes back to the owners. Okay? My. What's the halacha? It makes sense a minute before you sanctified it. We won't want the sinner to benefit. Even if we have to make you own it in order so that it works as a korban, why should we make you own it any earlier than we absolutely have to? Of course, what you could also say is, is that maybe we won't have to make you own it at all if you never wind up sanctifying it. Why should we across the board make you own it? Um, so it makes a lot of sense that what we will say is at the moment you sanctify it, like at that moment, you know, that's when you own it. Okay, so that is the end of those takanot, no really tikkun olam, but takanas mizbeach, takanas hashavim, and so on. Okay, now we are going to do another takana. The law of the secret code, secret code were people that were basically threatened to murder uh, Jews, these were non-Jews, Romans or whatever, who threatened to, to murder Jews um, unless they would sell them their land, okay? And we'll see in a minute in the Mishnah, special halachas that apply there about, uh, you know, whether they recognize the ownership of the secret code when the Jew was forced to sell it, you know, under that type of duress. So the law of the secret code did not apply um, at the time when, um, what do you call it, at the time when um, um, uh, they actually were uh, we're right now in the three weeks, right? As we teach this stuff, and uh, the whole Gemara we're going to get into is the classic Agadat Khan Korban Abayas, and based on this Mishnah. So, and this is saying that this idea that they would steal this land and uh, by threat of death in Judea and so on, when it was actually the period of the war itself and people were being slaughtered during the war, the law, the, the law of Sikrakon did not apply. Okay, meaning it was basically, so it, basically we just considered. Well, we'll see in the Gemara. I won't, I won't ruin the surprise. Okay. After the, in the immediate aftermath of the war, when the slaughter stopped, okay, and still though, these people were coming and threatening us and threatening the Jews to sell their land. At that moment, they said, the law of Sikrakon applies. What's the law of Sikrakon? So the law of Sikrakon is the following. When, um, um, so... Basically, this Sikrakon came and forced Reuven to sell him his plot of land. And believe me, Reuven probably sold it at a significant discount. Now, I'm going to come and I want to buy that plot of land. Um, who should we consider to be the true owner? So the original halacha is that we would consider Reuven to be the true owner. And because we consider Reuven to be the true owner, it matters the order in which I try to purchase it. I'm going to try to do the right thing and buy it off of Reuven, but also I have to pay the Sikrakon as well. He stole it, and if I want to practically have control of the land, I'm going to have to pay him as well. So now it depends the order in which I'm going to go about that. So, first I paid the Sikrakon, and then I went to Reuven and got Reuven to sell it to me. That doesn't work. Because the only reason Reuven is agreeing to sell it to me is because 
because he figures, you know, like, what's the Sikrikon going to do if finds out that Reuven isn't giving up all of his rights, right? The Sikrikon basically put a gun to Reuven's head, said, sell me the land. Reuven sold him the land. Now the Sikrikon is selling it to me. And now I'm going to try to buy it to Reuven. If Reuven doesn't go along with it, he's going to get serious grief from this Sikrikon because he's holding things up and, you know, and, 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 and gumming up the whole works. So in that case, that doesn't work. We don't really believe Ruvain really wanted to sell it to me, right? I should not be in cahoots with the Sikrikon, okay? So, however, if first I went to Ruvain, and then Ruvain was under no pressure to sell it to me, and, you know, Ruvain had to deal with a bad situation. The Sikrikon stole his land. He had no idea if he was ever going to get it back. He could freely decide, Dove, if you think you can manage to go ahead and get it, or you have enough money to pay the Sikrikon something, whatever, Gazuntahed, at least I'm going to salvage something from it, and I will sell my rights to you. I will sell it to you for X amount. In that case, he sold it to me totally freely. So, so that would work. Okay. Now, similarly, let's say I want to buy property that belongs to the wife in the marriage, you know, but it's under the husband's control. Either she brought it in in her dowry or the husband, or she has a uh, lien on it against her ksuva. But it's some property that is, you know, fundamentally sort of like, you know, the, the wife is the one with rights, sort of like Reuven in the other story. But the husband is the one who's in control of it, like the Sikrakon, all right? So in that case, I mean, obviously that's <laughs> a bad analogy, but you get the idea. Okay, the question is whether we assume both parties are doing it willingly. So, At first I got the husband to sell me his rights in this property, and then I went to the wife. That doesn't work. Because the wife might not really want to do it, but she wants to do it because she doesn't want to get grief from her husband. Okay, so she's going along even though she doesn't really want to. Okay, First I went to the wife, and then I went to the husband. In that case, nobody was compelling the woman to first sell me her rights to the property. So in that case, it works. This was the first teaching. Basin um Amru, but the, 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 a later basin ruled. So the first ruling of the law of the Sikrakon was we do not recognize the ownership of the Sikrakon. Reuven is the real owner. And whether Reuven is freely selling it or not, whether we deem him to be freely selling it, depends on whether you went first to Reuven or first to the Sikrakon. Okay, but Reuven was recognized as the real owner. What did the later Basin say? That if you buy it, that they real that if you buy it from the Sikrakon, you don't have to worry about Reuven. Okay? In practice, we're going to assume, we're going to treat the Sikrakon as the owner. Um, be, um, um, and but because we're also going to assume though that the Sikrakon was able to buy it at a 25% discount from Reuven. That's pretty impressive that, or whatever, unimpressive that he was only able to get a 25% discount with a gun to Reuven's head. But maybe because, you know, it was the implied use of, of force or whatever, and um, wanted, and it was still, uh, you know, at some degree wanted to make it look legit. So anyway, he only got it at a 25% discount from Reuven. So in that case, the only thing Reuven really lost out 
well, he, he might not have wanted to sell the field, but dollars and cents what he lost out was the 25%. So therefore, in practice, now that these cyclicons have this land and are we really going to continue to treat Uvein as the owner and then have to try to buy it from both of them, you know, that's going to be, anyway, that's going to be really impossible to try to get it back under Jewish control. You're going to have to pay a lot to the cyclicon and a lot to Uvein. So in practice, it's a lot easier to work, function as, really, real, as seeing the cyclicon as the true owner and just going ahead and giving Reuven the amount that Reuven lost out on the transaction, the 25% that he lost out. So that was the new ruling. When is this true? If Reuven does not have the wherewithal to purchase it. But if Reuven can buy it back, then they also have to be given the preference. Okay, so this was very pragmatic, as opposed to saying technically Reuven owns it, you got to get the buy off the cyclicon, and then you got to buy it from Reuven, and you got to do it in the right order. Which is like, let's just deal with the facts on the ground, okay? The cyclicon has it. We're not going to fix that situation. What we can do is we can say, first of all, Reuven gets first right to buy it before anybody else. And second of all, if you buy it from the cyclicon, you have an obligation to pay Reuven what he lost in the transaction, okay? Um, now, Rebbe Hoshi based in Venimnu, Rebbe uh, uh, convened a based in and they voted. Shim Shasa Bifnei Sikhon Shemus Archodesh, Kola Kodam Likach Zacha. I will not sing the Baal and Revia that if it stayed within the hands of the Sikhon for 12 months, then first come, first serve, meaning that then it sounds like that Reuven then loses his right of, you know, he has a right of first refusal, but it's only for a year. After that point, we can't start looking around for Reuven and worrying about him. Again, we have to be practical about this. Um, and again, maybe we also want to make it easy to bring that property back under Jewish control. Okay, but the law that you still have to give Reuven the quarter that he lost out, the 25% he lost out, that still applies. Okay, so we will end with this here and we will pick up tomorrow first analyzing the Mishnah and then getting on to the Agadita, very appropriate for this time of year, about Korban Habayas.